This week on Roundtable, we take a look at some of the state's new laws for 2024. We've really seen a sort of continuing breakthrough in bills that seek to speed up development and construction. Many of the laws target our high cost of living and labor rules for the state. The law requires employers to give employees five days off now. We discuss what they mean for Californians next. Plus, how much impact will Californians moving out of state have on our economic future? Stay tuned. The KPBS Roundtable is coming up next. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Twenty twenty three proved to be a busy year for California lawmakers who passed nearly a thousand new state laws. Many of these laws took effect Monday with the start of the new year, and we wanted to dig into some of these to see how they'll impact health care, housing affordability, our work lives, and more here in California. Joining us now to break things down are Samia Kamal, California politics reporter from Cal Matters, and Jeremy B. White, senior reporter covering California politics for Politico. Welcome to Roundtable and Happy New Year to you both. Samia, before digging into these new laws, I wanted to set the stage here first, if we could. You know, something around 1,000 new laws, that sounds like a lot to me. Can you put that number into perspective for us? I think that is the number that we have seen commonly over the past couple of years. About 1,000 of the bills were passed at the end of the legislative session. At the end of September, about 15% were vetoed. Um, So we're looking at about, you know, close to 900 bills that were that were signed. Many, as you mentioned, went into effect on January 1st. So yeah, I think we're pretty on par for the course for what we tend to see each year in California. So Jeremy, so it sounds like that's kind of a normal year. What did you notice about last year's legislative session? I think one theme that was pretty prominent in this legislative session was just how active of a year it was for bills supported by organized labor, everything from cracking down on self-driving trucks to trying to extend unemployment insurance to striking workers. We saw a couple major deals on wages for healthcare and fast food workers. That was a big one. And I think on another hot topic, which is housing, we've really seen a sort of continuing breakthrough in bills that seek to speed up development and construction a lot of which stalled out in recent years, having a lot of momentum behind them and and seemingly surmounting a lot of uh, those hurdles that had previously held them back. So, yeah, let's dig into housing. I mean, like you mentioned, you know, we've seen a lot of movement both at the state level and here locally. 
to ease zoning rules in order to spur more housing production. And one new law that went into effect in 2024, it's informally known as the Yes in God's Backyard Bill. How is this law looking to help ease the housing crisis in the state? Great question and also a good example of the dynamic I was talking about. This concept uh, has been around for a few years, which is how we got the Yes in God's Backyard or Yigby label, which is sort of a play on Yimby for Yes in My Backyard, the movement of pro-housing construction advocates. This essentially says that if you want to build housing development on land owned by a religious institution, that it is the easiest form of approval to get. It's called by-right zoning, and it essentially doesn't require a whole cumbersome approval process. And again, this is a, a policy that was attempted repeatedly in the legislature and sort of ran aground uh, largely because of opposition from organized labor. And this year, it it finally made it across the finish line. Gavin Newsom signed it. I, I think the, the obstacle here was never really Gavin Newsom. It was more sort of getting these bills to his desk. And so do you think, you know, this yes in God's backyard bill, do you think this will make a substantial impact on housing in California? I think the way that I would think about this is to zoom out and consider the array of different housing bills the legislature passed both in 2023 and in preceding years. I don't think anyone who works in the housing policy world will tell you one of these bills is going to by itself fix California's housing crisis. I think it's more that the cumulative weight of them, whether it's dealing with speeding up building uh, on religious land, speeding up building in cities that are falling behind their goals, um, you know, making it easier to build uh, accessory dwelling units. It's kind of the combined force of these laws, as well as other things that Sacramento has done to force local governments to get more serious about meeting their goals that the hope is will cumulatively make a big difference. And kind of like you touched on there, I mean, this was just one of a few bills that showed this kind of rise of Yimbyism policies. It's something I know you've covered quite a bit. What are some of the others? The other big one that you have to uh, talk about here and that I think in a lot of ways its fate was sort of linked with that uh, Yes in God's Backyard bill, uh, a bill called SB 423, which extended an earlier law that essentially said in cities and counties that are falling behind their state-issued housing goals that you can build a lot faster. And so this is a policy that since it's been on the books, folks credit with really helping to spur a lot of development, including in places like San Francisco, where it's notoriously hard to get stuff approved. State Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco, who's been sort of the, the head paragon of the movement, pursued this one. And again, this is one where there was a lot of organized labor pushback, also some organized labor support. There was really a split. And in the end, it did get across the finish line. I think everybody was looking at that as sort of the the big one from this past year. And there seems to be sort of like a push-pull between the state you know, instituting these new laws, but also localities trying to retain that power as far as housing go. I mean, isn't that part of what's going on with these these housing struggles? Absolutely. And I think you have seen the Newsom administration and the attorney general in various ways, whether it's filing lawsuits for noncompliance, whether it's uh, making efforts to sort of 
link funding to what local governments are doing on housing, even just using that bully pulpit to call places out, you're really seeing the state in terms of officials like Governor Newsom and Attorney General Rob Bonta sort of wield whatever powers they have and at times ask the legislature for more powers to really force those city and county governments to do more. I think there are a lot of causes of the housing crisis. It's a complex issue, but there is a pretty broad consensus among Democratic officials who are really moving the agenda on this that local intransigence is a huge culprit for this decades-long slump in building. And so you've really seen a lot of prominent officials willing to take on local governments here. And I think that's something that demonstrates another shift, which is that for many years, that's been a very politically risky move. And in a lot of ways, it still is. But I think there is a calculation that folks are making correctly that there's also now a lot of support for this, that yes, you are going to be fighting with local governments, constituencies like homeowners associations, but at the same time, there's also a lot of support, including politically, for getting tougher and forcing people to to do more. And Samia, the state has also changed the rules regarding ADUs, better known as granny flats. It's now easier to sell those separately. Is that right? I mean, how does that work? That's right. So before, if you had this ADU on your property, if you wanted to sell it, you also had to sell your your own primary residence or your you know the main house on the property. So this law now allows you to sell that out separately as a condo. You know, as long as you have permission from the homeowners association, et cetera. But yeah, I think you know, agreeing with what Jeremy said, this is part of this package over the last five years of these different ways that lawmakers have set the stage, including, you know, specifically for ADU developments. Over the past few years, we've seen laws that cap development fees, ban public hearings and design reviews. And we've seen lawmakers ease the requirements around parking and landscaping and storage for ADUs. So I think in some ways this has been in the works, you know, setting the stage for where we are now. And kind of like what Jeremy touched on earlier, this ADU change, it does need local approval for it to go into effect. Isn't that right? That's right. Uh, Yeah, cities do need to opt in to the approach. And even if they do, um, property owners still have to get approval from their cities. Although one of the ways that the state, um, this law tries to address, you know, that that tug of war is um, uh, cities are required to complete the review process within 60 days. So I think, you know, so far, just with ADUs in general, we've seen some cities really go along with it, including the city of San Diego, I think being one of the more enthusiastic participants in that the city has a bonus program where if someone agrees to construct one ADU and keep the rent affordable for for low-income people, they're automatically allowed to build a second bonus unit, and then they can rent that out at whatever price they like. But at the same time, there are other cities that have found ways to sort of push back or obstruct those efforts. And Jeremy mentioned this earlier, that there's a number of new laws related to workers' rights and wages. Let's take a look at a few of those now. A new law in the book says employers in the state can't penalize employees for using cannabis outside of working hours. Jeremy, is this the next step in making cannabis use more acceptable? I think you could absolutely look at it like that. This law sort of expands a previous law which prohibited employers from doing certain types of drug screening, finding uh, and penalizing employees if they find non-psychoactive cannabis residue in their system. 
That takes effect uh, this year, and it has been fortified by another bill from last year that additionally prohibits employers asking about past cannabis use. And so, you know, as as usual, there were exemptions for things like a federal background check, but certainly you have seen sort of incremental efforts to to chip away at different ways that current and past cannabis use can be used by people like employers to to discriminate against job seekers. And Samia, California's workers get more paid sick days in 2024, but not as many as proponents had hoped. What can you tell us there? Yeah, the initial bill sought seven days off up from the three that were in place in, you know, last year. They kind of met in between and uh, the law requires employers to give employees five days off now. Um, so, you know, part of that negotiation was pushback from industry groups like the California Chamber of Commerce and, you know, the Hospital Association, the Grocers Association, who said that this, you know, um, the the cost on businesses and just the labor impacts of like having people on that, you know, increasing the number of days off was difficult. So that the result of the negotiations was five days And many workers also now qualify for leave as a result of reproductive loss. What are the details there, Samia? Yeah, so this is separate from, you know, bereavement leave and family and medical leave, pregnancy disability leave. This new law requires all public employers and private employers with um, five or more employees to give five days off for people who suffer from either failed adoption or failed surrogacy, a miscarriage, a stillbirth, or, you know, unsuccessful uh, assisted reproduction, which means procedures like artificial insemination. Um, and so those can be taken either by the person who, you know, suffers from those losses themselves or their spouse or domestic partner or, um, you know, just their partner who might have been a parent as a result of, of the pregnancy or procedure. I think there are a couple of requirements, like someone has to be at a job um, for at least 30 days before they can take that leave. But I think this is, you know, for a lot of these things have not been, you know, built into traditional leave policies. So I think it uh, definitely addresses a need that that many people have struggled with. And Jeremy, another one that's been getting quite a bit of attention, the state's fast food workers will see a $20 an hour minimum wage starting this April. What are fast food workers and their employers saying as they prepare for the change? It's a great question. This was a huge fight. Uh, There was a law passed to create an industry regulating council that could boost wages. Fast food industry immediately went and qualified a ballot initiative to overturn it. And out of that came the deal that that led to the wage that you're talking about that sort of dismantles that original regulator, but but guarantees a wage. And we did see over the holidays that one of these major fast food chains, Pizza Hut franchises specifically, announced plans to lay off delivery drivers in California, attributing it to this change. And so I think we're still going to see the effects of this play out. I think there's no doubt that plenty of fast food workers appreciate the higher wage uh, at the same time. We certainly heard plenty of fast food employers talk about how onerous new regulations would be. And I think the bigger political picture here is that fast food workers and sort of the service industry more generally has been a huge sort of untapped 
source of labor organizing for unions who have hoped to organize these workers for for many years with fairly limited success. And so the the end outcome of this round was was winning that higher wage, but it certainly fits into that broader context. And Jeremy, another law, it'll be coming later this year in June, the minimum wage for healthcare workers that will increase to $23 an hour. Can this change ultimately be linked to the pandemic? I think you could in the sense that a lot of the political momentum to boost wages for healthcare workers came out of the pandemic, honestly, in a similar way that you saw a lot of worker organizing and activity come out of the pandemic. So that was certainly part of it, but this was also a sort of bigger multi-year fight with labor pushing for these higher wages uh, for healthcare workers. Like I said, I, I do think the, the pandemic supplied some of the momentum. So did a lot of ballot initiatives that the industry was getting sick of fighting and they were sort of looking for an off-ramp from those fights. And, and that's what this deal supplied. And Samia, speaking of healthcare, undocumented immigrants in California now have more access to insurance. Tell us about that new law. Sure. So the state has gradually provided access to Medi-Cal to different age groups. This started back in 2015, actually. Former Governor Jerry Brown signed a law that allowed undocumented children to be eligible for state insurance. And then last year, that was expanded to seniors. Um, But starting January 1st, that application process opened up to undocumented immigrants who are uh, between 26 years old and 49 years old. They are now eligible for Medi-Cal. And this is the final expansion of the program. Um, it also makes California the only state to fund this comprehensive health care for undocumented immigrants. Although, you know, it doesn't cover quite, you know, everyone because there's about half a million undocumented immigrants who still make too much money to qualify for Medi-Cal, but they also can't afford private insurance. So they're kind of stuck in between. And so that's something that I think we'll see advocates try to push for in the future. It's also not without opposition. Uh, we have seen already um, one lawmaker, Republican Assemblymember Bill Asaley, introduced a bill to revoke any funding in the budget uh, for health care for undocumented Californians. And Jeremy, another law changes conservatorship regulations in the state. This is something San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria has been a big advocate for. Remind us about that change. Certainly, to your point, I think the desire to change conservatorship laws to make it easier to essentially compel people into these court-appointed oversight relationships has been building in a lot of places. Um, You've seen in San Francisco as well, the mayor there, uh, London Breed, in addition to San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria say, look, the tools we have now are just not strong enough and we we need to find something more we can do here. And so Governor Newsom signed uh, a bill that expands conservatorship laws, including for Californians dealing with severe substance abuse disorder and serious mental illness. And uh, I think it's it's part of a larger push to think about how the state handles people who are unhoused, who are sort of the toughest cases. This is coming at the same time that the governor has pushed his uh, care courts program to, again, address that population with a sort of court process and is additionally pushing a bond that's going to be on the ballot in March to fund more behavioral health treatment. And so these are all sort of different bites at this larger, very vexing issue of uh, people who may be unable to care for themselves and end up on the streets. 
Coming up on Roundtable, more on some of the state's new laws, plus a look into what we can expect from Sacramento in 2024. It is clear that there's going to be a lot of efforts to deal with retail crimes, property theft. There is a dedicated committee in the state assembly created by the new speaker to address this issue. And we've already seen a few bills introduced to deal with that. That's next on Roundtable. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Andrew Bracken. We're talking about some of the new state laws taking effect in 2024. My guests are Samia Kamal from CalMatters and Politico's Jeremy B. White. Now, Samia, as of Monday, police need to tell you why they pulled you over. This was a law passed back in 2022, taking effect in 2024. Tell us about the change. Yeah, so, you know, officers in high crime areas, they commonly look for minor traffic violations, like if you have a broken taillight or, you know, an object hanging from a rearview mirror as pretext to pull you over so that they can then search it for drugs or other contraband. Um, And that practice, you know, proponents of this um, law had said that it has a disproportionate impact on minorities. Um, Some of the data behind that is, you know, Black people account for about 13% of traffic stops in California um, in 2022, and they're only 5% of the share of the state's population. So that's kind of the backdrop of this um, law. Um, officers will now be required to tell you when they stop you why they are pulling you over. And, you know, the the California State Sheriff's Association did push back on this law. And they said that traffic stops can be um, dangerous for uh, police officers and that they should be free to take action without first explaining their reasons. But I think this is one of, you know, several bills we've seen over the last few years that seeks to address some of the racial inequities that we see in the criminal justice system. And Jeremy, in July, an 11% tax will be imposed on firearm and ammunition sales in the state. Do we know what that money generated from that will actually be used for? It is going to go into a special new fund in the state treasury, and the money from there flows into various different programs, including grants to deal with violence prevention, uh, money to go towards mental health and behavioral services in schools, a Fort Court uh, firearm relinquishment program to take care of guns from people who are no longer able to own them. So the money is is flowing to a few different sources. But I think depending who you ask, this bill is maybe more about creating a disincentive 
to acquiring more firearms rather than necessarily funding these programs. I think it's a mix, as with anything like this, like, say, a cigarette tax, where you're trying to both influence behavior and then use the funds for something. But um, an example of a bill that despite California's, or I should say California Democrats' strong support for gun control, support for taxes is a different matter. This is something that was proposed repeatedly and never quite got the votes it needed because it's a tax that requires a two-thirds vote. But this year turned out to be the year. And some of these new laws impact California students and schools. Jeremy, can you tell us about a few of these? Sure. Um, I think one of the more significant ones was a bill outlawing uh, suspensions for what's called willful defiance uh, when students are acting out in class, something that we had seen various bills in previous years to limit or cut back on this process. And this was the year that lawmakers really sort of did away with it. And with the hundreds of new laws, you know, we won't be able to get through all of them. I did want to get your thoughts on any you think you'd like to highlight. One that comes to mind to me is the new law that ends bans on cruising that was introduced by San Diego Assemblymember David Alvarez. Samia, we can start with you. What other laws stand out to you? One that I have been looking at is there is a new law that tries to increase transparency and and reporting of sexual assault cases at uh, Cal State campuses. Um, I think this was born out of several, you know, of these controversies that we did see in the last year and that we've seen over several years. And Jeremy, any other laws you'd like to mention? This one is a bit longer of an implementation timeline. Uh, It's actually not going to take full effect for a couple of years, but I, I think it's worth thinking about arguably the biggest climate law passed last year, which requires large corporations to talk about their carbon footprints and climate-related risks and how they do business. It was a big fight. There was a ton of opposition from the corporate sector, but this one did get to Governor Newsom's desk and he signed it, even as he said he would maybe like to see some follow-up legislation that that limits the scope of it. So again, not one that you are going to imminently see changing things, but certainly looking back on last year's legislative session, that was a biggie. And so that was last year, but now we just started a new legislative session that began Wednesday. So what are you expecting this year? Well, a couple things. Um, I would say it is clear that there's going to be a lot of efforts to deal with retail crimes, property theft. There's a dedicated committee in the state assembly created by the new speaker to address this issue. And we've already seen a few bills introduced to deal with that. And then yesterday, the same day that we saw protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza shut down the assembly, the California Legislative Jewish Caucus also unveiled their plans to do a series of bills, including dealing with sort of campus climate and how students are taught about uh, sort of anti-Semitism and and Jews and that type of thing. And so um, if yesterday's protests were any indication, I would think that that legislative fight could get pretty contentious. Samia, how about you? What are you looking out for in the new year? I I think another, I guess, area is artificial intelligence. We've already seen some bills introduced, um, or at least intentions of bills to introduce how to how to tackle that. And I think that's going to be possibly another showdown, um, similar to what we saw in terms of the state trying to crack down on social media regulation and its impacts on on kids, especially. So we might see another, you know, more pushback from the tech industry on the state's attempts to crack down on that. And um, I think, you know, housing and homelessness will We'll continue to see more efforts to try and address those issues. 
um, as well as climate, kind of the the ongoing issues that we deal with as Californians. And late last year, you know, we started to hear news of California's projected $68 billion deficit. Do you see that changing the focus of the legislature this year at all? Definitely. <laughs> you know, I think every lawmaker I've talked to so far, that is the the main lens through which they're looking at, you know, what bills are going to introduce. I don't, you know, we've the state has dealt with budget deficits in the past, and that hasn't necessarily stopped lawmakers from introducing bills. Um, but we did see a lot more, I think, or we saw a significant amount of vetoes by the governor um, based on budget concerns, even, you know, last year. So I think that will definitely shape the year that's ahead. Yeah, just concurring with Samia, I don't think there's any way that it doesn't shape the year ahead. And one piece of that sort of circling back to a thing we discussed earlier that we're watching out for, that law uh, boosting wages for healthcare workers to $25 an hour, the governor was very clear when that bill was on its way to his desk that he had serious concerns about the fiscal impact. And his office has signaled that they want to do some sort of follow-up legislation to soften that impact. So what exactly that looks like, we're still waiting for some details, but I think that battle over healthcare wages, which was a, a very sort of contentious and messy set of negotiations, is is not quite over. And another thing that the new year brings, it's 2024. It's an election year. Not only that, it's a presidential election year. How does that change what happens in Sacramento? Well, I think one thing that we've seen is a direct link to some of the things that uh, are playing out uh, in this election. For example, we've seen uh, a proposed bill that would empower the Secretary of State to potentially remove candidates from the ballot if they do things like engage in insurrection, something that's likely not going to affect Donald Trump because it's just not going to have taken effect in time for California's primary. But obviously, um, the former president's struggles and, and the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to remove him from the ballot is something that's reverberated in Sacramento. And then uh, a, a separate race here, um, an assembly member running to succeed former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Vince Fong. After a sort of complicated saga around timing, uh, Vince Fong has been allowed to run for that congressional seat, even though he had already filed to run for another assembly term. And so there's going to be legislation essentially saying you can't do that. So a couple bills we're tracking that are directly linked to some political developments this campaign year. And Samia, any final thoughts from you on the coming year? Yeah, I think, you know, um, we talked about the protests a bit. And even though I think many people who support a ceasefire understand that the state has a limited role in what it can do, um, they're still looking to every level of lawmaker from, you know, city council to um, state lawmakers to Congress members to um, speak out, whether that's, you know, calling for the release and, you know, continued efforts to the release of hostages or calling for a ceasefire. So even though it's the, the state doesn't have a direct role in that, I think we are going to continue to see this um, issue come up. And, you know, I, I think we've seen as we've gotten closer to this election year, just the ways that um, lawmakers across the political spectrum have become more um, willing to address crime. Um, I think that's something that we might see more of in the coming year. I think there's been sort of a, you know, um, pendulum swinging of, 
you know, the conversations around racial justice and social justice, and then like these experiences that people are really having in their day-to-day lives with with crime. So I think that's something that we can um, expect to hear more about in the coming year. Oh, man, we didn't even talk about reparations, but whatever, that could be a whole other segment. Right. A lot to cover, and we'll hopefully have you on later in 2024 to catch up on some of this. I've been speaking with Samia Kamal, Capitol reporter from Cal Matters, and senior reporter Jeremy B. White, who covers California politics for Politico. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Anytime. When Roundtable returns, California's losing population what that may mean for the state's economic future. What's been really also uh, stunning is that we've had proportionally more college-educated and higher-income folks who have left the state. That's coming up next on Roundtable. Welcome back to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Andrew Bracken. California is facing a $68 billion budget deficit in the coming fiscal year. That's according to state budget analysts. After decades upon decades of growth and people moving to the Golden State, more Californians are now moving out of the state than are moving in. And in recent years, the types of people moving out of the state are changing, which may come with economic consequences for California's future. Don Lee covers economic issues for the Los Angeles Times. He recently published a piece digging into California's migration trends. It's headlined, The Wealthiest Californians Are Leaving the State. Why that's very bad news for the economy. Don, welcome to Roundtable. Thanks for having me. So first off, can you paint a picture of what migration out of California looks like today and how that's changed in recent years? Well, to give you some sense, um, the most recent data we have is for the full calendar year 2022, and about 820,000 Californians moved out to other states, and around 475,000 came in. And so that's a net loss of about 340,000, which is, you know, double the numbers in the recent years prior to the pandemic. And so that's quite a big jump. And what's been really also stunning is that we've had proportionally more college-educated and higher-income folks who have left the state. And so those numbers have skewed much more in that direction in recent years. And just this idea of migration out of the Golden State, I mean, it's fairly new for California, isn't it? Well, actually, it's an old story because California has been losing net domestic migration. That's movement between states. And California has been having negative domestic migration for the last 30 years. And sometimes we may not think of that because the population numbers until just recently had grown every year because we have a large number of people coming in, migrating from foreign countries. And then, of course, we've had uh, birth and natural growth from that. But 
in more recent years, uh, international migration has slowed sharply and the birth rate has declined uh, significantly. And so that's really highlighted or put a you know much sharper focus on the domestic net migration because it's brought the overall population down the last couple of years for the first time in, in decades. What about the relationship between migration and the economy? In simple terms, how does that work? Well, of course, uh, people are important to the economy. And uh, when you have people coming in, you bring consumption. And certainly for California, it's brought economic uh, dynamism and vitality, more startups. You also can give a good boost to housing. And at a time when we're having a demographic crunch with baby boomers retiring and uh, declining birth rate, as I mentioned, we have a less favorable labor supply that's available. And so if we're losing more people than are coming in, then that uh, can also harm the economy. And then, of course, you know, as you mentioned at the outset, losing people and higher income people can cause problems for the state budget. And this past year, personal income tax revenue fell about 25% from the prior year. And so that accounted for a huge chunk of the surprisingly big deficit that we uh, will have in the next fiscal year of about $68 billion. And you spoke to one small business owner who relocated from Oakland to Las Vegas. Can you tell us about her and her reasons for leaving the state? Yeah, her story, uh, I think, is not uncommon. She was a lifelong resident of um, Northern California, grew up and went to college in the East Bay, and and some years ago started her own business. And it seemed like the business had been growing, and she has several employees, and what she told me was that, um, you know, her business was operating in downtown Oakland, and she says she just didn't feel safe having her business there. And then she also talked about uh, the taxes and support for small businesses and just the overall business climate. And so she said that, you know, she and her husband, who works in uh, and home building, um, that they moved to the Las Vegas area. And, uh, you know, Nevada, as we all know, um, has attracted a lot of California residents. And among other things, it does not have a state personal income tax. And that seems like a theme, the the tax-free states. Can we talk a little bit about where Californians are going? Texas is, you know, the top destination for Californians leaving the state. But where else are they headed? Well, they are headed to border states for the most part, Nevada and Arizona, as well as uh, mountain states. In the past, you had more Californians going to, say, Washington State, but that state has also gotten more expensive. And Washington State uh, does not have a personal income tax either. And in more recent years, we've also seen more Californians going to Tennessee. Uh, and that's pretty far away, uh, but uh, one of the attractions there, besides its affordability, is that it also does not have a personal income tax. And so there is a pattern of that. And then, of course, Californians have been moving to Florida as well, older people 
who, uh, you know, don't want to see their IRAs and their fixed incomes taxed any more than they need to. And um, Florida doesn't have a state income tax either. And what's the role that the coronavirus pandemic plays in this demographic crunch, as you put it? I think one of the biggest uh, factors in the increase in migration, the out-migration from California, has been the wide acceptance and growth of remote work, and specifically fully remote work. So people who are working 100% remotely from home. And where that's really had an impact is in the Bay Area, but also throughout the state, because people who can work from home by and large, are in industries like technology or information, you know, professional services, and they tend to have um, higher educated and upper income people. And so the fact that we've been losing more upper income and college graduates uh, to other states, I think that is a, a big factor in that. And secondarily, I, I've you know, done some stories in the past where I've talked with people who have left California and migrated to other states. And I found that, you know, the pandemic uh, caused uh, a lot of rethink on the part of people in terms of their priorities and what they uh, see as important uh, and the work-life balance. And so some people wanted to go and be closer to their families Older people who were close to retiring decided to retire earlier than they had planned. Uh, And so I think for all of these reasons, the pandemic has had a a pretty big impact on the increase in uh, migration. And on remote work, I mean, some large companies like Amazon, they seem to be starting to pull away from remote work, trying to bring their workers back into the office. Is there any evidence that moving away from remote work will potentially bring some people back to California? I haven't seen indications of that. Certainly, if the fully remote work jobs uh, uh, decline, then it's going to make it harder for people to move out of state for that reason. And so it will probably uh, slow out migration to some extent. But I think, you know, people who have... uh, already moved out, uh, I don't think, um, you know, they're going to come back uh, unless their companies insist that they come back or force them to come back. And for many of these people, their jobs, uh, I think, uh, are, are, you know, they're able to do them from home. And so I don't really see uh, a return of workers because of remote work. And you know what? One fact of life in California is just the high cost of living. Is there an argument to be made here that maybe migration out of the state isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we hear all about, you know, high housing prices. We're not building enough housing in the state. A lot of us know about traffic, things like that. I mean, is that an argument to be made here? Well, you know, California has been growing year after year and for decades, right? And I think California has um, benefited enormously from by being able to attract uh, people to the state. It's always uh, been a destination for young people and for people with dreams. And and so I think if California loses that appeal, there will be a cost to that. 
And sure, if you have slower growth and a weaker economy, you're going to have less traffic. I mean, during the recession, I remember in the 1990s even, and uh, certainly during the Great Recession, you have far less traffic uh, in the the freeways, but um, that's not necessarily a good thing. And so I I don't think that in itself uh, is the answer to you know some of the long-standing issues, uh, whether it's related to affordable housing or traffic or uh, climate, I mean, I think we have to ta- tackle those things, you know, apart from uh, just wanting to have fewer people come in and uh, seeing the, you know the benefits of people moving out because they're being driven out. And what's been the response to your story? I'm curious. What, what, what have readers been telling you about this reporting you did? Well, I've had a range of uh, reaction. I mean, some saying, well, the story didn't mention that California charges a 1% uh, additional tax uh, for personal income if you make over a million dollars. You know, the top tax bracket is already 12.3%. And and another percentage point is added to help with uh, mental health issues and spending. Uh, so I've had some readers comment about that, and others said, "Well, you know, the p- number of people who are actually leaving, even though that seems like a large number, is still a tiny fraction of California's population of 39 million. And so, are we making too big of a deal of of this op- migration data?" And I think. It's true that it is a small fraction of the population, but when you add them up year after year, they do then have a cumulative effect and uh, have much bigger impacts. And finally, I'm curious, do you get any indication that this migration trend could change in the coming years? And what would need to happen for that to change? Well, certainly the economic slowdown, and we're not really sure just how much of a decline we're going to have. And I think we seem to be in for what they call a soft landing, right? Where we don't actually decline into recession, but it would be slower growth. And between that and uh, maybe some pullback in fully remote job postings and hiring and a slowdown in housing prices uh, or the slowdown in growth, I think they would all potentially contribute to a slowdown in the net out-migration numbers that we've had, you know, which have been extraordinarily high, you know, coming out of the pandemic. So I think all the indications to me suggest that there's going to be some slowing uh, in the numbers of uh, people leaving. Don Lee reports on economic issues for the Los Angeles Times from Washington, D.C. And Don, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. Thanks. 